Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. This week's podcast once again comes from the live show that I do every month at the BFI South Bank in London, MK3D. Last week, we heard from Himesh Patel and Romola Gary. This week, it's the turn of director Joanna Hogg, whose new film, The Souvenir Part 2, is currently playing in UK cinemas. You'll hear Joanna talking about her new movie and also about her guilty genre. And it's a real surprise. So sit back, relax and take a front row seat at MK3D Live from the BFI South Bank. It's not just me, is it? He'd make a great Bond, right? I I think you should actively campaign for this. I think, you know, do the thing and the, you know, yeah. I'll do it on the radio show, okay? We will start a campaign, Himesh Patel for James Bond, okay? We may have to kill people to make it happen, but we will make it happen. Okay, time for a complete gear change. Here is a a trailer for a film which I've been waiting for for ages. This is the second part of the souvenir, souvenir part two. I've been waiting for this to come out for ages. Incidentally, if you are enticed by this, there is a screening of this immediately after us. I know most of you will have seen The Souvenir. This is a trailer for The Souvenir Part 2. Hi. Hi, Julie. Jim. Sorry about your loss. Thank you. This is going to be the most important thing you do at film school, your graduation film. It's about a relationship that hopefully many people can relate to. Presumably there's a film next, but... No, the whole team students. And no one's giving you direction? No. Sounds fairly typical for an art school. Okay, let's hold it there. Right, what were your thoughts? It excites me. It excites me. Don't say something that you could say after watching anything. It's great. It excites me. Say something specific, honestly. Just think about what makes you happy, what you're interested in, and it will translate. whether I'm missing Anthony or whether I'm missing having a companion. I really want to be able to talk to someone who I don't go to film school with mm-hmm. and who's not my parents. Where's my sunny girl? But you do realize you're the one who can make it happen. I don't want to show life as it plays out. I want to show life as I imagine it. That's all you can hope for, isn't it? 
I'm storing, I'm gathering experience and information, and I'm waiting to find what I want to do with that. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the creator of Souvenir and Souvenir Part 2, Joanna Hogg. <laughs> Joanna, lovely to have you back on the show. Welcome back. Very nice to be back. Congratulations yeah. on the film. Um, so I've been hanging on for ages because, you know, obviously everything's been kind of on, on hiatus. So... The first half of Souvenir took us through a relationship that ends with the male character dying. And the second half of Souvenir is the character then making a film about their experience of the relationship. Now, I know that we've talked about this before, but it's autobiographically inspired, and certainly in terms of your experiences of being a young filmmaker. Uh, it is, but um, I think the first part was more uh, based on my life in a way, and the second part, um, I was you know, I made up a lot of stuff actually. So, <laughs> and now it's a bit strange because well, I haven't looked at it actually for a while, but I, I, I get a little bit confused about what, what was real and what wasn't. But but I know that uh, yeah, there, there, there was a lot of things that didn't happen to me. I didn't make a film based on the relationship I had. I thought that would be interesting to mirror that in the second part. How closely does it mirror your experience of film school? Because it seems like a bit of a shark pit. <laughs> it, uh, well, it wasn't, but I, I had a very particular experience of it because I was, um, for a lot of the time that I was at film school, uh, consumed by this relationship, unfortunately, because I wasted a lot of time um, uh, in that relationship when you know I could have been making more films at film school, spending more time at film school. So it was very, um, yeah, it, it, it was sort of tarnished by that in a way, my experience. But then also I think because of the films I was influenced by at that time or the ideas that I had, I wasn't, I wasn't your typical film student in a way. I sometimes thought maybe I would have been better at art school actually. and and and. I was very into taking risks, but I, I didn't want, I wasn't very interested in dialogue in my films, so they were very visual, my, my screenplays, uh, um, such as they were. And I think, uh, yeah, I don't think the tutors at film school really kind of understood what I wanted to do. A little bit like Julie in, in part two, but uh, because of the way that I work and, and a lot of the dialogue that the actors are coming up with come, is come, you know, I'm not writing it, so I'm not sort of planning everything every inch of it, so it means there's so many new ideas that come in. Um, it can't really be based on my own experience because I'm sort of allowing, there are so many doors that are open to, to new ideas. Just to show what polymath I am, I'm going to move this microphone slightly nearer to you because obviously I'm also a technical aid. Just <laughs> hear a slight boomy sound. Oh, okay. There we go. No, no, okay. but just also, it's just yeah. because then people recognize that I'm also very technically adept. And I've now put it in the way of your knee, so well done. <laughs> What an arse. There we go. Have I done that right in the sound box? Thank you. It was fine in the first place. Yeah, thanks. Um, I'll try and speak clearer. One of the yeah. things... I'm going to do that. There we go. Okay. One of the things that I love... I know it is. One of the things I love most about... So, I mean, I'm a fan of your films anyway, and, and uh, 
you have a really particular style. But I think one of the things about Souvenir is that both the Souvenir films are the most accessible stuff you've done for people who weren't necessarily you know, fans or devotees of your previous work. And I think the reason for that is that there are scenes in them that are funny and scenes in them that are lively and scenes in them that are piercingly sad. I'm going to play a scene from Souvenir Part 2 that I find really funny. And one of the, well, I'll show it and then we'll, we'll talk about it afterwards. So this is essentially the film students are all making their, their final year films and they're all having to you know, get their edits together and the stresses are starting to show. And this uh, features uh, Richard Iredi, who of course has been a guest here at MK3D, and this is it's a great scene. I tried this this morning. Yes, I see that. It's much better. I liked you as a robot cowboy in Westworld, less so as a cutter of films. But you liked it. What I did you think? It. What were your thoughts? It excites me. I, I, like, I like what I'm seeing. I'm, right. I wish it was my film. You know? Right. That's marvellously generic. I mean, if, I think we could do with a few more details of the faces, maybe to see some of the faces. That's, that's a bit more I've asked for two there. more days. Lydia, can we have two more days to shoot some close-ups? No. Then we can't cut them in, Chris. OK. Yeah. We can't cut in those close-ups we don't have. No. What do you think? What does it make you feel? OK. Yeah. You're forcing me to have a tantrum. <laughs> So, you know, you said a, a level of improvisation, obviously, but scripted or written or what? Richard. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I really just um, set the scene and um, allow... A, a lot of it's in the casting, frankly. You know, you cast right, and then, yeah, you've sort of already got... Um, got along a, a lot of the way. And, um, and Richard did a lot of research, actually, for that part. And... Um, he, um, he was loosely based on a few directors um, of that time in the 80s, and so he researched. We looked at interviews together, and in fact, actually, out of all the actors and the non-actors in part two, I probably had more conversations with Richard prior to shooting the scenes with him than any of the others. I mean, not quite more than Honor, but, but a lot anyway. And you mentioned Honor, Honor Swinton Byrne, who who had not acted before you cast her, is that correct? That's correct, before part one. And yeah. So how did that come about, her casting? Uh, it, uh, well, it was strange because, uh, well, it took me a long time to find someone to play that character. The months were going by and we decided when we were going to shoot the film and I still hadn't got Julie, who was going to be not just in one film, but in two films. And I, ca I cast um, her mother, which is a strange thing, before um, I cast Honor. So I cast Tilda and then I went up to see Tilda in Scotland to talk about the part um, with a lot of anxiety behind me or in me at that time because I thought, well, I just haven't got, you know, I haven't got the daughter, but I'm talking <laughs> to the mother. It's a bit strange. And um, now it just seems so obvious. I don't know why I didn't think of Honor to begin with, but Honor happened to be there when I went to visit and we had a conversation and I was talking to her and I just saw in her what was missing from all those other people that I'd seen in casting sessions and, and um, yeah. And in part two, we see the director who isn't you, but is you, but isn't you, but is you, looking around for her own central character to play a version of herself, and she ends up casting somebody who isn't an actor, and that seemed to be 
very much a kind of reflection of what you had done with Hona. Yes. I mean, I don't think I was thinking that at the time, but it was very much uh, after making part one, and then I introduced Ariane Labert, who's a wonderful actress, at the end of part one as one of um, one of the other students. And it just, I was sort of casting, in a way, with honour, in a sense, the sort of pool of actors who were in front of us. And it just seemed fun to, for, for Ariane, for Garance, uh, to, to play that part. We were in Shetland together some years ago, and you said to me, this is when you first told me how much you loved musicals, and then you said, I'm making a disco movie. Do you remember this? No. <laughs> you said, I'm making a disco movie, and I went, what do you mean? You went, I'm making a movie that's got disco something. And then, of course, I was, hey, listen, I don't know, you said it to me. And um, Georgia, my daughter, was here. She heard it. Georgia? Yeah. She did say that, didn't she? Really? I'm not yeah. imagining it. Yeah, you said I'm making a I disco like movie. Yeah. yeah. And uh, but then, of course, watching this, then there are these bursts of these, you know, classic periods. So I thought this this is what you were talking about, oh, but not. Oh. Well, not no, not exactly. I mean, I'd still like to make a musical at some point. I don't know whether it would be a disco musical, but um, but this is definitely yeah. There's bits of that desire. Tell me about choosing the needle drops, because you have very specific tunes, and you have this thing that you do, that you, you start playing a tune, and it's really, and you really love it, then bang, it just stops with the end of the scene, and it's really harsh, and you do it all the way through. So uh -huh. tell me about choosing those tunes. Well, they were all, they were all tunes that I heard uh, myself and was affected by in, in, from, sort of, uh, from 1980, well, through the 80s, um, which meant not necessarily tracks that were created in the 80s, because that was something I was interested in doing, is not fetishizing the 1980s. Yeah. Because for me, the 1980s was also about the 1940s, because I love films set in the 1940s. It was also about music from the 60s and the 70s. So I wanted to reflect that in, in the film. So yeah, they all have some resonance for me. One of the things that really got me was that you used Knowledge of Beauty from Dexie's Midnight Runners Don't Stand Me Down, which is the great Dexie's Midnight Runners album. It's almost a way of making friends. You go, which is the best Dexie's Midnight Runners album? If they don't say stand, don't say. And I was so astonished. I've never heard anyone use that in a film before. Yeah, I, I was aware of that too, actually, because I wanted to use tracks that we didn't necessarily have any cinema associations with. But and you don't hear Dexie Midnight Runners enough, I don't think. It, no, it's such, it was such a brilliant choice, such a great choice. So <clears throat> the film opens here in a couple of weeks. There is a screening immediately after here. There's a couple of tickets left, so if anybody you know, wants to go and see it, you have to rush out, go to the box office, come straight back in again. <laughs> you mentioned your love of musicals, and I remember being surprised when you first said that. And then we asked you to pick a guilty pleasure, and you came up with not a trilogy, as Himesh did, but an entire genre. <laughs> and what's brilliant is, I guarantee you, if you said to somebody, guess which genre Joanna Hogg picked, no one would have guessed this. Your guilty pleasure genre is... Disaster films. <laughs> now, this is so great, because firstly, I love disaster movies. <laughs> Nick and I made a Secrets of Cinema entirely about disaster movies, oh. which you haven't seen it, I'll send it you, I'll send you a link. Yeah, please. Fabulous, covers all the ground. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me, like, an early disaster movie that imprinted it. So why, I mean, why? What's the thing for you with disaster movies? Well, it's funny, because when I was asked this question of, you know, the guilty pleasure, um, I sort of immediately thought disaster films, because I've particularly been watching a lot of them, well, during the pandemic, actually. <laughs> Um, although they're getting closer and closer to home, yeah. so they're becoming more scary to watch. But uh, I, uh, for me, they're the ultimate escape, or they were the ultimate escape. And the first one that really 
had an impact on me was the Poseidon Adventure, which I think was 1972. So I was 12 when I saw it, and I was terrified by it. And I think I was already terrified by water and sea. So the idea of a tidal wave is probably my, my it's sort of my worst fear. I imagine that many people have seen the Poseidon Adventure. If you haven't, here's the plot. A bunch of movie stars playing a bunch of different people are on a boat that gets hit by a tidal wave and it gets turned upside down. We used to refer to it as the upside down adventure. Here is the upside down moment. And when I saw this in the cinema the first time, I couldn't believe I was seeing this. Here we go. That's proper filmmaking. <laughs> and you know, the genius of it is that those scenes where you see people falling apart, we interviewed the special effects guy, he said, yeah, the way we did it was they just tilted the camera and they got the people to just run by the camera going like that, but with the camera on the, on the shonk. It's, I mean, it was that and Towering Inferno and Earthquake all came pretty much the same time, early 1970s, and I just went to see them over and over again. What, what did you love? The cinematic thrill, the, the spectacle? The death? <laughs> I, I, it's the spectacle, but then what I realised, having thought about it a bit the last few days, it's the, um, it, 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 it's the fact, I think I've always been sort of quite anxious and quite, uh, I don't know, it's, I sort of get feelings of dread sometimes that something terrible is going to happen, a lot of the time actually. And so su there's something that satisfies me about uh, watching a disaster film like that, that, that I'm seeing I mean, I may be wrong about this, but I'm sort of seeing the the, the dread realised. Yeah. And 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 so it's not it, it's not me. This dread's happening out there. There's something, yeah, sort of li not liberating exactly, but there's something, you know, it's sort of entertainment. I mean, it's 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 yeah, like satisfying or whatever. The thing that's fascinating is that disaster movies are as old as cinema itself. So you start getting disaster movies really, really early on. Uh, New York gets wiped out by a tidal wave in a film in the 1920s, and then you get you know in old Chicago and the earthquake movies and the fire movies, and they're all very much morality tales. You know these people will survive and these people won't. And then the big 70s cycle, which I thought was kind of, you know, that was it. And yet, but the cycle continues. We're going to show another clip now from uh, the day after tomorrow, which, okay, the special effects are bigger and more glitzy and more... It's the same movie. It's a bunch of famous people and the world throws some catastrophe at them. So, let's have a look. much harder to watch that is absolutely terrifying there's something about that body of water that um, is 
I don't know. One minute. I'm sure I'm not alone feeling that. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I think the thing that's kind of... Uh on a serious note about those movies is that thing you say about if you fear disaster, actually seeing it is a relief. In the same way that I think the horror movies release tension, release fear, rather than creating it. Because I remember going to see, I mean, I saw every disaster movie that came out. I loved them. And I felt exhilarated. But I also felt, you know, anxious and terrified in the towering inferno and all the rest of it, I think it's, it's just the way that cinema kind of can exorcise those fears. Yeah, 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 yeah. So and I've particularly found it in that genre more than the horror genre in a way, so I find more escape in that. But I, but I am aware, just watching that clip, I mean, we, you know, there was an earthquake the other day in Tonga, yeah, yeah. wasn't there, and a, and a tsunami. So it's just, it, it feels, you know, and climate change, God knows, you know, what's, what's going to happen next. So it's, it's maybe... Yeah, will cease to be such an escape. <laughs> well, it is interesting that disaster movies have become much more eco recently. So, I mean, in the sort of last 10, 20 years, we've, it, b before it was, you know, mankind builds a, a skyscraper and it catches fire and it's kind of to do with hubris. But now a lot of it is to do with, you know, mankind messes around with the environment and then this stuff happens. Have you seen, no, I'm sure you haven't, but have you seen Skyfire with uh, Jason Isaacs? No. It's fantastic. <laughs> Absolutely. It's just one of, it's, it's such a treat, okay? Jason Isaacs oh, plays a South African <laughs> entrepreneur in a purple suit, and I'm not making this up, who builds a hotel on the side of a volcano. <laughs> and then tells his guests, we're all going to be fine. And then the volcano blows up. And it's just, it's nuts. But it's the, you know, it's that same, it's a, it's a biblical morality tale, because obviously these all date back to those kind of great Bible pictures. What's your favourite? What's your favourite disaster movie? Uh... Well, I think probably Poseidon Adventure, just because I saw it uh, age 12 and it had such a, an effect on me. But I'm, I'm always, I'm open to discovering more, so I want, you know... I'm going to send you a link for Skyfire. <laughs> yeah, and, and then I want to see Moonfall, obviously. But also, you know, with Poseidon Adventure, I mean, look at that. Gene Hackman, Ernest Borgnine, you know, I mean, Roddy McDowell, everyone's in... The, every Shelley Winters, who famously says, you know, I'm thin in the water, which is such brilliant... No, but it's brilliant. It's brilliantly written. It was like a variety show. Get all the most famous people you can put them on a stage and then either blow it up or flood it or set fire to it and watch them dance that's kind of what it was yeah 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 but i'm not sure if i could ever make one 
I mean, maybe that would I'd be love a challenge. To see, I'd love to see a Joanna Hogg disaster movie. <laughs> oh, go on, please. Make a, di- make a disaster movie with Himesh as James Bond in it. <laughs> definitely, definitely. <laughs> Joanna, thanks ever so much. Congratulations on Souvenir Part 2. Well, both parts. I, I do think they feel like a single movie. They, they, you know, it, it's nice to see them together. But congratulations. I look, what are you doing next? Uh, well, I've shot another film already, actually. Wow. Which um, is? It's a ghost film. I don't want to say too much about it. Um, it's called The Eternal Daughter. And I don't know when it's going to come out. I'm sound mixing it tomorrow, in fact. When you say ghost film, horror movie? Well, it's or not eerie? horror, actually. I mean, I'm still working out what it is, because when you're still making something, you don't quite know what you're doing. I don't, anyway. Um, but it's, uh, it's, yeah, it's spooky. Um, hopefully, people find it spooky. But it's not horror. Um, it's more of a, of a sort of... Um, well, it's not The Innocence, because that's such a brilliant film, it can never be The Innocence, but it's sort of in that territory a little bit. Okay. M.R. James, a bit. I mean... You're saying all the right words. <laughs> okay, I'm really looking forward to it already. It's called... The Eternal Daughter. Okay, and we'll see that maybe this year or next year? Uh, I'm hoping. I sort of think it's a Christmas film in a way, so maybe next Christmas, with any luck. Brilliant. In the meantime, Souvenir is here in a few weeks, but as I said, immediately after the show... Thank you, the great Joanna Hogg. So we always like to finish with uh, sound and vision with a bit of music. How many of you have watched all, is it seven or eight? Georgia? How many hours is Get Back? Eight. When in doubt, ask your child. Eight hours of Get Back. Some of you, okay. It's brilliant. It is like being in a room with the Beatles. And it's, you watched all of it, right? It's just great. The saddest thing about it is that George keeps coming in and going, I've written this really great song. They go, yeah, George. Anyway, Octopus's Garden. (laughs) Which of course is why after everything finished, George made a solo album first because he had like 20 great songs that they'd be just going, yeah, all right, George. Anyway, over here. So we're going to end with, I know this is the most famous sequence, and I know everyone's seen it before, but you may not have seen it on a big screen before. So we're going to take this opportunity to use um, this beautiful theatre to play the Beatles playing their famous, uh, you know, uh, rooftop tune. There is a screening at the BFI of the whole of the rooftop footage um, that they shot. And I had a date written down on my piece of paper, which I now haven't got. Hang on. Hedda, do you know... Sometime in the near future, there is a screening at the, at the IMAX of all the rooftop footage. It comes to something like half an hour before the police make them stop. Um, you can see the police in this clip. Anyway, um, in the sound booth, can we turn this up loud? Because since it, thank you very much, like literally 11. Here we go.
I, lo I love the fact that John Lennon's amp packs up, but George Harrison has to go and fix it. They won't play his songs, but, oh, George, would you mind just fucking go and do that? Anyway, okay, thanks ever so much, everybody, for coming along. Please join me in thanking my guest, Romla Gary. Himesh Patel. And Joanna Hogg. Thanks to Nick. Header. Everyone at HLA and the BFI. See you next month. Stay safe. Well, there we are. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Joanna Hogg, recorded, as I said, live at the BFI South Bank in London. Those shows take place every month. If you're interested and like the sound of them, then why not check out tickets? You can go to the BFI website. But bear in mind, they do sell out pretty fast. Thanks so much for listening to this Kermit on Film podcast. The Souvenir Part 2 is currently playing in UK cinemas. And if you're a fan of disaster movies, Moonfall is in cinemas too. And that's a real disaster. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed the podcast, tell your friends. Remember to subscribe. Check out our Patreon page. Stay safe. Keep watching the skies. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.